Hello, and welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Benning. Here with me is Danny and Liz. Hi. Hello. So, friends, what are we talking about today? Our book this month is Pyramids, the seventh published Discworld book, and relatively rarely, not part of any specific subseries. So, is this a good book to start with? Mm, no. I would kind of lean towards the no side. Really? Yeah, I, I mean, I really loved Pyramids, but it's a very different book. So I feel like if you like start with this one and then try to go e- read Equal Rights or like more or something, it's going to be very, very not what you're expecting. I would have to agree with that. Uh, Pyramids, while it does make for some very good filler in between books, it's not really the best place to start since it doesn't actually follow the different arcs we've discussed in the past. Um, I would highly recommend starting with one of them before one of the intermediary books like this one. I'm not sure I agree with your use of the word filler there, Danny, because I think that the standalone books mean that the Discworld series can be about things besides the specific arcs that form the tentpoles of the franchise. But I don't think you're necessarily wrong, either. I'd say if you were going to rate the start ability of the Discworld books, I personally would put this on like like around a 7, actually. It sounds like you two would put it more like a 4 or a 3. Is that fair to say? I would say that's fair. Yeah, I think so. Time now for trivia, as provided by the secret extra sister who resides in a dark chamber of an ancient tomb. Published in 1989 and winner of that year's British Science Fiction Association Award, Pyramids is a rare Discworld novel divided into chapters, in this case four books. The names for two of these books are derived from the title of an ancient Egyptian text, originally known as the Book of Going Forth by Day, but better known to us as the Book of the Dead. The Kingdom of Jelbaiji? Jebel? Uh. Hang on. I'm about to make you groan, I think. Mm-hmm. The Kingdom of Jelly Baby. Oh, yeah. Yes! Oh. <laughs> okay. I heard the audiobook. It was yeah. glorious. <laughs> okay. The Kingdom of Jelly Baby is named after the British candy known as Jelly Babies, which featured prominently in classic Doctor Who as a favorite treat of the fourth Doctor. The fact that American audiences didn't get this joke inspired Pratchett to create a new Discworld country of Hersheba? Like Hershey bars? Yes. Yeah, I'm one of those Americans who didn't get it. (laughs) I sort of got it after the footnote about it literally meaning child of of the gel. Yeah. Pyramids is riddled with many religious references, mainly Egyptian in origin, but also featuring such lines as I am a stranger in a familiar land, or the plague of the frog, both of which are nods to the book of Exodus from the Torah. On the far end of the reference scale, the Assassin School and Tepic's friends were inspired by the Victorian novel Tom Brown's School Days, and the final exam at said school is heavily based on the British driver's license test. And, of course, the fate of the High Priest Dios is inspired, directly or indirectly, by the Robert A. Heinlein short story, By His Bootstraps. But we'll talk about that later. Our story begins in Ankh-Morpork, as Tepic prepares for his final exam at the school of the Assassin's Guild. After a round of questioning with a strict instructor, Tepic moves through the city with the guild's signature athleticism and style. 
only to find that a crucial foothold has been removed, and he falls to his apparent death, triggering a sequence of flashbacks. We learn that he is actually the prince of the ancient Egypt-esque country of Jelly Baby, a nation deeply in debt because all of its money goes into building pyramids for its dead kings. This is the first time a Discworld book has a country with a specific identity beyond the standard fantasy England. I really liked it. Something about Jelly Baby feels like really warm and old in a way that the rest of the Discworld doesn't necessarily feel. It's kind of nice. It's kind of like going on a little vacation. Besides its name, which made it immediately enjoyable, I also liked that Jelly Baby was a branching out point into different cultures outside of fantasy England. And from what I do know, from what I believe we all might have learned, just our collective knowledge of ancient Egypt, it felt both familiar, but also had that Discworld flair that I've come to enjoy. Speaking of Jelly Baby, we see Tepic's father, Tepisimon the 27th, a man plagued by delusions of being a seagull, as he makes a fatal attempt to fly making this the third Discworld book in a row where a major character's father dies at the start of a story, and the second in a row where said father is a king who becomes a ghost. It's a very specific trend. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> uh, Tepisman has an interesting role in this story. What did you two think of him? Also, Danny, you'd be able to correct if I'm mispronouncing his name. I think in the audiobook they did call him Tepisimon. Cause only because it would be a lot harder to call him Tepikimon, unless that is what they called him. Or Tepisimon. Yeah. Which sounds more like a paprika-themed Digimon. <laughs> I went straight for Pokemon, but yeah. <laughs> well, Digimon were the ones whose names ended in Mon. Therefore, it is probably more accurate. Yeah, Tepic would be the Pokemon. Uh, but going back to the podcast that we're <laughs> recording. Yes. He... Is definitely an interesting character. I appreciate his kind of like, he was king of the kingdom, but he kind of seems like he was like a little floaty and like, yeah, he was king, but he wasn't like really like leading it, which is, as we kind of find out, is kind of what the case was. So him being a little odd and thinking he was a seagull was like totally okay. Uh, when I first encountered Tepissimon as a character, I... I had hoped he was going to be a bit more fatherly. He was very distant, and the flashbacks made it more than apparent that he was willing to send his son incredibly far away uh, just to try to make him into a better person, which, admirable. I yeah. felt he did come into his own more after his death, which was pretty ironic considering his own thoughts on that matter. <laughs> I think something about him being like a distant father to Tepic is kind of supposed to mirror the relationship that the king has with another character, which we're going to get to like super soon. Obviously, he's very similar to the ghost of King Varence from Weird Sisters, but I'd argue that Tepissimon is more relevant to the narrative as a representation of the regrets and frustration that the people of Jelly Baby spend their lives suppressing. It's like Terry Pratchett finished writing Weird Sisters, looked at the Ghost King subplot, then smacked himself with a rolled up newspaper and said, Now do it again, but properly this time. <laughs> so, with his father's death, Tepic is now the God King of Jelly Baby, and must return home to assume the throne. He says goodbye to the friends he's made at the Guild School. 
Most notable among these is Chitter, an affable lad who only describes his family's business as commerce. I, honestly, I liked Arthur more than Chitter because I thought they'd both be more background characters so I could get attached to whoever I wanted. I did find myself wanting a lot more of the assassin school in the plot proper. Yeah. It had an excellent foundation in the beginning of the story, but I just wanted to know more about that world because of my own personal interests. <laughs> I could probably read a whole book about like assassin school stuff or rivalry with the thieves guild. I like how the guilds interact with each other. That was that was very nice. Yeah, and I think something that's especially why the assassin school was so interesting to read about is because We've already heard about it and those relationships in the other books. And so now we're finally getting to, like, see it proper, except it didn't really stick around. The principles carried through, and that's probably the most important part. Despite being ostensibly in charge, Tepic's authority is shackled by the country's ancient traditions, as enforced by High Priest Dios. Where most of the villainous characters are defined by ambition, Dios has basically the opposite goal, the personification of conservatism. Dios was rather entertaining. I enjoyed, I enjoyed him. His manner of speech was unique, and as an aspiring writer myself, I can certainly appreciate that. But as a character, his role was well written, but I just found it really annoying. <laughs> I fully support Tepic's rebellious tendencies. Diaz very much feels like kind of the overbearing father that like another character in this position might have. And it's like, I think because something about it reminds me of that. I wasn't convinced when we were first introduced to him that even though something about him seemed off, that he was going to be the bad guy. Really? Yeah. Like, I kept, like, flip-flopping about it, like, back and forth, being like, no, this guy's definitely going to be, like, the big bad. And then, like, a couple pages later, I'd be like, I actually, I'm not convinced yet. Yeah, I had a similar feeling, actually. One could make the argument that he isn't really the big bad. Yeah, because I don't think he is necessarily, like, a capital V villain. So, as is tradition for Jelly Baby, and against his wishes, the deceased king Tepisimon is going to be interred in a pyramid the largest and grandest pyramid ever constructed. Teclusp, the architect in charge, along with his two sons, Teclusp 2A and 2B, set to work on the task. What did you think of these characters? I really liked them. I think their relationships to each other, I think, was the most interesting part about them. But there wasn't a whole lot there to necessarily, like, pick apart. <laughs> Which is a little disappointing, especially because... Like, the further they go into building the pyramid, the more interesting that those interactions get. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I had that same experience with the the Taclusps. You, you listen to the audiobook. You should know the pronunciations better than any of us. <laughs> nope. Because <laughs> I had to read it afterwards. I had a similar feeling with, with the architects as they were introduced. I did enjoy their interactions also much more at the end. Uh, because I was more focused on Dill and his apprentice at the beginning. Uh, the mummification folks. Yes. Uh, Dill and Gurn, right? Yeah, they were they were fun, especially as you got to see more of Tapisimon as a ghost and his thoughts on the afterlife not being what he thought while watching himself get mummified. 
Yeah, I wanted to care about them all more, but for how much they factor into the plot, there wasn't enough character to them for my liking. Yeah, and that's why I feel like Pyramids could almost have been like a much longer book if like those characters had just gotten a bit of like a subplot of their own, but it just didn't happen. Tepic continues to struggle fruitlessly against Dios's iron grip on the country. This comes to a head when Tepic, in his royal duty as judge for legal disputes, tries to pardon Tracy, his father's favorite handmaiden, for the crime of not volunteering to be entombed with the late king. Lesbian thoughts versus girl power. <laughs> That's basically my dilemma here. Tracy is interesting because, like, she could have easily really been this very, like, soft, flowery, princessy, handmaiden kind of type. Or she could have been, like, this tough-as-nails kind of girl. And she kind of falls, like, somewhere in the middle, which I think is very appropriate for who she is. But it is also obvious that this book is not uh, one published within, like, the past couple years in how she's described sometimes. That kind of, she doesn't sit super far on either side of the line is what makes it really interesting because we get to see how someone on both ends of that spectrum fits into that position in this book. I do feel like we get a lot of those characters, perhaps more recently. There's always a certain amount of context we miss out on not reading these books in the time that they were published. Yeah. Characters like Tracy are not super uncommon now. I still feel like she is a little bit more girly than sometimes we let our tough girls be. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Because it just like it just clicked in my head, but she's very much kind of like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of type, which considering the time period, like makes a lot of sense in my brain. I'm nodding. (laughs) It's hard to see, but I was nodding. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 1997, so 80 years before Buffy. Wow, that's a lot later than I thought that show came out. And the movie was 1992, so... Oh, okay. I was like, I thought that's what I was thinking of. I was like, I had like early 90s in my head because I was thinking of the movie. I feel like Tracy was introduced kind of late in the story, and at first it felt hard to pin down why she was present from just a thematic perspective. Mainly, it seems like she exists... To illustrate how, unlike the people of Lanker, who just blithely accepted whatever horrible things the ruler did, Jelly Baby citizens are at least partially struggling against the culture of stagnation. And she has perhaps the strongest arc of the characters in the story, which we can discuss more when we get to it. As construction of the Great Pyramid continues on, it begins to affect the world around it. Because, you see... The reason why they entomb pharaohs in pyramids is because the sheer mass of the building creates a distortion in space-time. Technically true in certain models of the universe, but in Discworld it means that pyramids themselves accumulate the time that would pass inside them and release it into the night sky. The sheer scale of this new pyramid is such that time and space fluctuate around it, among other things, creating temporarily displaced duplicates of the workers in its construction. I just like how they were described as, like, the kind of magic that pyramids have. It's just described as, like, oh, you know, like, geometry. Which is how math feels to me all the time. (laughs) Oh, once that all started happening, I found myself thinking, leave it to a chief architect to try to find ways to make the construction goes smoother while paying less money the mr krabs almost Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) 
Ahoy, SpongeBob! I am going backwards through time! <laughs> nice. Anyway, meanwhile, Tepic uses his assassin training to break Tracy out of prison. She's hesitant to trust him, even and especially after he reveals his identity. But soon they are confronted by Dios and must flee the palace on the disc's greatest mathematician, the camel known as You Bastard. And we try not to swear on the show, but it is the literal name of an important character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no void in this one. That camel couldn't give two shoes what anybody <laughs> thought of him. Mm-hmm. In fact, he gave no shoes since he's a camel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked the cut to his thoughts as a comedy device, uh, but beyond that, he didn't really have much impact. Yeah, he, he was a vehicle of... I lost the end of my sentence. I'll redo that once I think of it. He was a vehicle. <laughs> yeah. He was a plot vehicle. <laughs> Definitely more of a plot device than a fully realized character. But we do get more insight into his thoughts than we have with things in similar roles. I do appreciate the like little tidbit in there about how like all camels are named something that like somebody would call them in anger because they're not doing what they want them to do. So yes. he's, you bastard. <laughs> but yeah, he's just kind of like, there he was entertaining but not much else actually real quick what would be your camel name oh my god mine would be for crying out loud probably mine would be oh come on i don't know whenever i like i get angry at stuff i call it baby but i don't feel like it has the same rank to it (laughs) (laughs) now like what would somebody like (laughs) exasperatedly yell at you oh at me oh um probably like god damn it or something (laughs) Sorry to spring that on you. I just thought of <laughs> no, it right okay. now. <laughs> a good question. I find it interesting that you bastard gets not in quotes or anything, but an internal monologue that we glimpse occasionally, where something like the luggage has its thought processes described. Yeah, and I feel like where the like third person nature of describing the luggage kind of adds this like he's an unknown eldritch horror kind of thing that's just doing <laughs> stuff and nobody quite gets it. He's a semi-domesticated mimic. Yeah. Oh, oh my. <laughs> now that you put it like that. But the camel is very much like something we're supposed to have more of an interaction with. And the characters are supposed to have more of an interaction with and not just like a thing that's going to do what it's going to do. I hear often that animals are better at mental math than we are, like for a cat to leap from the window to the table requires a lot of mental trigonometry that normally we wouldn't think about. As Tepic and Tracy flee from Dios, the construction of the Great Pyramid reaches its peak. Or it would, but the pyramid's point has not been put into place yet, and that's a problem, because the tip is what allows the pyramid to discharge its stored-up supply of time. Just as Tepic and Tracy leave Jelly Baby, the pyramid fails to flare, and the entire country becomes trapped in a sealed-off pocket of time. This is about the part in the book where some of the, like, mathy bits about how the pyramids were started going over my head, and that was detrimental. Um, so it's like, I like I understood that the pyramids were doing something magical, but I didn't necessarily, like, have it all worked out yet. And so the pyramid's just kind of pulling everything, pulling the country of Jelly Baby out of time. Was kind of like, oh, that's what that does. 
from an imagination perspective, that whole scene was just stunning. Yeah. I was, not literally, but I was on the edge of my seat reading it. I was I was really hoping that they would get the cap on in time just because I was rooting for the for the people. I did find it appropriate that they would be so caught up in tradition that they couldn't save themselves despite the protests of the younger generation. Also, quantum. Yes. You know. It made for a good repetition gag, but it can get a bit bothersome when it's used to describe something that no one understands. And the people who do are meant to be way smarter than the reader, but still can't explain it in a way that makes sense. King Tepissimon emerges from his sarcophagus before going out to the other pyramids along with the embalmers to open them up. I think it's just like nice to see Tepissimon interact with the embalmers and actually get like a response. The moment they decided to go open up the other pyramids was the moment... I started laughing because I knew where this was going and I could not wait. Meanwhile, Tepic and Tracy venture to Ephib, land of philosophers. They are useless, but culturally obliged by the disappearance of Jelly Baby to go to war with the neighboring land of Sort. Uh, welcome to ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and considering, like, the history that those countries had, I think it's, like, it's a nice bit of contrast and relationship that we get to see in this, like, fantasy version of them. It's like they, they kind of watered down Greece, pulled out the interesting bits that people would recognize, and then made them overly dramatic and funny. <laughs> yes, it took an army of wooden horses for me to realize that. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, the one at the end is on rockers. That must be the generals. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. All hope seems lost until who should arrive but Chitter, Tepic's friend from school, now working in his father's smuggling operation. Chitter is enraptured by Tracy and offers Tepic a partnership in the business. Tepic considers it, but in a dream he speaks with Kuft, the founder of the kingdom and decides to return. After retrieving you bastard from the stables, Tepic goads the camel into finding his way back across dimensions into the pocket universe where Jelly Baby's various gods have been causing havoc. The only way to solve this, Tepic realizes, is assassinate the Great Pyramid. Which is like such a ridiculous like plot point, and it makes so much sense, and I really love it. <laughs> He better go down in history for assassinating a building. Makes me wish I could do a Nicolas Cage impression. I'm going to assassinate the Great Pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tepissimon and the Legion of Undead Kings, freed from pyramids, finally reach the last one. The very first pyramid ever constructed in Chili Baby. And they find that it belongs not to Kuft, but to Dios. The high priest has lived for 7,000 years, preserved by the time-distorting effects of the pyramid, and he will not allow them to be destroyed, even to free the nation from its prison. However, the gods come to attack Dios, allowing the army of mummies to assist Tepic in climbing the Great Pyramid by forming a human one. 
there's like a lot of foreshadowing in this book that I didn't realize was foreshadowing until we got to the climax. The best kind of foreshadowing. Yeah, which is like, because it was like, okay, Tepic is like standing on the shoulders of all of his ancestors, which is a dream that he literally had. Like, then the tidbit in the middle of the book where they're talking about how the ancient jelly babians, jellians, um, had like pyramid building figured out in a way that like, like they were like the perfect pyramid. They did exactly what a pyramid was supposed to do and like perfectly captured time. That was kind of like a thing that got lost as time went on. Didn't seem like it was really worth anything until we got to the end of the book and it was. Yeah, that part, I I misinterpreted it. So I thought that in the very first few pyramids that there was going to be just some really sickly old guys just laying in bed there and they'd been there for thousands of years. Like, I was more horrified that it wasn't mummies in all those pyramids, that some of those guys might actually be alive. (laughs) I didn't even make the connection to Dios. My attention was more captured by the ancestors, as I alluded to before. I love it when the army of the dead comes out to play, but not on... I guess the bad side? Was there really a bad side in this? Like, you had the gods who were on their own side, you had the people, you had Dios, the priests, and Tepic. But obviously we're rooting for Tepic, so they're on the good side. But the best part was as they're helping him up, they're introducing themselves to him. Like, oh yeah, (laughs) hi, I'm your great-great-great-grandfather, or hey, I'm your great-great-great-uncle. And then you finally get to the top and you have his father, and it's like, you haven't met your great-grandmother, have you? <laughs> it's like the weirdest family reunion. It's the Ur family reunion. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate. It's so nice. Mm. Until you realize that most of these are mummies in various <laughs> states of collapse. And also the fact that they formed a humid pyramid. Like, mm-hmm. that's just, yeah, there's no other way it could have gone. Mm-hmm. It's like that that military exercise where you have to work together to get the flag, but the but the flagpole has been greased, so you have to make a human pyramid. That's what that reminded me of. It has like some sort of poetry to it, where Tepic is where he is because he's standing on the shoulders of his ancestors. That's right. I I forgot earlier he had mentioned something about feeling that he was at the bottom of an upside-down pyramid and all those thousands of years of history were funneling down to him. They just flipped that around. That's... Wow, I just noticed that. (laughs) Tepic plants his last knife in the tip of the pyramid handle down, making the sharp point for the stored time to flare off and return them all to the normal universe. Terry Pratchett is very good at those cinematic kind of climax scenes. You have the whole, he's climbed up the building on the backs of his ancestors. You know, he's about to slam this thing down. And I think, wasn't Dios also climbing up after him as well? I don't think so. I may have missed that. I don't know. Um, That's how I read it, that he was also climbing up there, like about to slam his hand down and like pull Tepic away. But then the knife hits the right point and all the fire goes off. And if you read books the way I do, with a very vivid imagination, trying to picture everything, it's like watching a movie. 
So, the cosmic warping that brought Jelly Baby back to reality also destroyed all the pyramids, and Dios is nowhere to be found. So, there's nobody stopping the country from moving forward, finally. Tepic discovers that Tracy is his half-sister and abdicates to her as he goes off to find his own place in the world. I wasn't expecting them to put Tracy on the throne. I should have seen it coming. I'm glad they did, because Tracy seemed to share some of Tepic's ideals, even though Tepic knew he couldn't be king. Tracy seemed a lot more bound to Jelly Baby than Tepic was. He always said that he was from Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, and it's like Ankh-Morpork is like the home that Tepic picked, but like Jelly Baby is the only home Tracy's ever known. And it's why like her having more of a relationship with uh, Tepicimon than Tepic did, I think makes a lot of sense because it's like she was always kind of meant for this position. She was always meant to be queen. But wait, Dios wakes up and finds himself in an untamed river valley and sees a group of people in need of guidance. It is heavily implied, though not stated, that he has been sent back in time to the founding of Jelly Baby and will live out its entire history again. It's like bits like this where I, it just like makes me stop and think. It's like, how many times has Diaz done this? Like, how old is he really? Because it's like he's at least 7,000 years old because that's how old Jelly Baby is. But it's like, is just all of time is just Dios reliving this over and over and over again? Yeah, especially when you pull into consideration at the end of the novel when they're questioning him. He seems like he doesn't remember much at all from his origins. He's just so caught up in tradition that he doesn't remember. So he could have been doing this forever and been enshrined in a pyramid over and over again in order to keep living, and he wouldn't even know to try to change the timeline because he's so set in his ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what Dios specifically represents as an antagonist, is the refusal to learn. It also makes a perfect time loop, which I personally do very much appreciate. And also wraps up his story very neatly. I know I mentioned it before in Weird Sisters that the main antagonist's end was very fitting to their character. It happens again right here. So that was Pyramids. What's your verdict on this one, friends? I think it's like a super fun read. It's It, it kind of caught me by surprise. It hits a lot of like different notes than the other Discworld books, but it's just like a blast all the way through, honestly. Yeah, I agree. This was super fun. I did enjoy it more than some of the other ones we've read before, Uh, not to name names. Mm -hmm. But I also do stand by my position that a bit more Discworld history would be helpful into reading this rather than just jumping right into it. One thing I'd like to discuss, specifically about the relationship between Tracy and Tepic, there's some implied romantic chemistry between them, even though we, the audience, learn relatively early that they are blood relatives, so that's kind of icky. But I think that their ending does provide a useful articulation of making a clean break with tradition by ending the practice of keeping the royal bloodline pure via incest. I think there are also ways that Terry Pratchett could have resolved this without the grossness, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that we find out that she is his half-sister in the same scene, or directly after Tepic is made aware that that Dios is looking for a family member for him to marry. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really close to that. Yeah, the, the timing was just a little bit awful. Yeah. Gross. I hate it. Gross, gross. I hate it. Yeah. And I think to be fair, that might be the intended reaction. Because even like Tracy and Tepic, once they find out, kind of very much like change how they interact around each other. But I do feel that the chemistry between them was played a little too straight. No pun intended. <laughs> it's a little too straight. <laughs> and I think that's kind of like, hard to deal with because it's very obvious it's like there's something not right about this here i have a question myself for you two Mm -hmm. do you think it would have been easier to read or just better if we hadn't found out that she was his half-sister until he did interesting i think it might have been worse yeah because like if you gotten invested in them having a romance and then found out that they were blood relatives i think that would have come across as kind of a betrayal because the way i was thinking of it was more you would get tepic's violent reaction like you would have it before when dios is talking about him marrying a relative but then you would have it again with her specifically Mm -hmm. and it would still be in character for him yeah this is just like a little bit icky It's not, like, I don't know if there's a real way to, like, fix it without making some, like, major changes, but... Yeah. I don't know. Tracy becoming queen did feel right to me. She deserved it after what she's been through. She had a head start on everyone else in embracing the world beyond the gel. And her going from handmaiden to monarch declares that destiny is not set in stone, and your current cast is not your only way of being yeah i just with her uh her final interaction i i think it's her final interaction in the book um with the new like head priest kumi well it's not her final scene but um like her penultimate scene yeah yes um i think that really kind of like emphasizes that fact it's like she's gonna be changing things because it's kind of what to do at this point yeah that's a good scene i like that scene a lot Mm -hmm. Yeah, but she's just like, no, I'm not doing that. And I'd just like to make it known that I do really like redemption stories and essentially anything that proves the malleability of the human character. Mm-hmm. I want to share one more scene that stuck with me because I misremembered it. So it's when they're freeing all the mummies and Tapisimon says to one of them, I hate pyramids, to which the newly freed mummy replies, no. What you feel now is mere dislike. When you have lain in one for thousands of years, then you will begin to hate pyramids. Before rereading this book for the podcast, I had remembered that exchange as taking place between Tepic and Dios, which I honestly prefer. Uh, my way may be incorrect, but it adds a rough patch to Dios's otherwise glossy smooth characterization mm-hmm. and reinforces the occasional glimpses we get that he feels that he's doing things entirely out of obligation rather than any genuine desire to influence the country. Uh, that said, we do get to see a little extra on Dios when Jelly is first sealed away from the rest of the universe. 
as that moment of being utterly lost without the structure or ritual that has defined his existence. It's largely buried by the football commentary scene, but I appreciated it. <laughs> oh, the football commentary scene was great. Yeah. <laughs> I'd actually huh. want that on a t-shirt, I think. Which one? <laughs> the That whole just commentation. <laughs> just that. Nothing else. That, I think, is very much similar to professional wrestling t-shirts in that it has a very specific audience and will turn heads <laughs> outside of that context. That's the point. All right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, each book we ask our audience to recommend actors who they think would do a great job portraying the characters, and Liz and Danny pick their favorites of the nominees. So who is your pick for Tepic, Prince of Jelly Baby? Our options, just for the audience to know, were, and I am going to butcher some of these names, and I apologize in advance, Najee Jeter, uh, Rami Malek, and Mina Masood. So anyways, the one that really stuck out for Tepic, for me at least, was Mina Masood. The, I, as I was looking up, he's Aladdin in the new Aladdin movie. But he's just got very, this very, like, handsome like quaffed kind of look to him that feels very appropriate for a prince but also somebody who was at assassin school fitting if he was playing aladdin naji jeter was a very close second since he was most close to what i pictured in my head and what about your picks for tracy i ended up going with china and mclean although there it was also another tight race yeah i think that's why i'm leaning towards just because that seems the most appropriate age-wise. I think she's got the right attitude. How about Dios, the high priest? I ended up having to go with uh, Navid Negaban. Again, I'm also probably butchering these names. But somebody put forth Jeremy Irons and bless them. This one's hard because I think I could go with anybody, honestly, if they had the right makeup. Because I just feel like Dios needs to be like... A walking skeleton, pretty much, to, like, sell it. How about Chitter? This one I'm, like, totally sold on. Ansel Elgort? No question in my mind. Same. He has... He seems like he could play that role. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to give a shout-out to the person who submitted Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For Chitter, a, a character who is, I believe, around the age of 17. <laughs> Okay, but can you imagine Colbert in assassin school? But he needs to be like just Stephen Colbert, though. Like, they don't try to make like a younger Stephen Colbert, just Stephen Colbert. How about Tapisimon? Okay, we also had Naveed Negabon in this category. And now that I think about it, it might be more fitting for him to be the former king rather than the, the high priest. However, it's also another... Like Liz pointed out, issue of makeup, because he's a ghost in half of it, and then he's a mummy. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose you could get that portion away with CGI. I really like Mark Curry as an option, just because I feel like he has this kind of like soft look that feels really fitting for a live Tapisimon. And finally, the inner monologue of You Bastard. This one I think I have to go with Kelsey Grammer, just because I imagine You Bastard talking like really really slowly as it's doing math and i cannot imagine like nick cannon was one of the options 
talking slowly in any sort of way. I have to agree on that one. We're almost at the end, which means it's time for the favorite footnote. One of the two legends about the founding of Ankh-Morpork relates that the two orphaned brothers who built the city were in fact found and suckled by a hippopotamus, literally Orijepal, although some historians hold that this is a mistranslation of Orijepal, a type of glass-fronted drinks cabinet. Eight heraldic hippos line the bridge facing out to sea. It is said that if danger ever threatens the city, they will run away. <laughs> And then in the middle of that, it splits into a second footnote. The other legend, not normally recounted by citizens, is that at an even earlier time, a group of wise men survived a flood sent by the gods by building a huge boat, and on this boat they took two of every type of animal then existing on the disc. After some weeks, the combined manure was beginning to weigh the boat low in the water. So, the story runs, they tipped it over the side and called it Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> All right, and with that, it's the end of the show. I'd like to thank Willow Carter for our theme music, my delightful co-hosts for your thoughts and words, and you for listening. Check your local library for our next book, It's Guards Guards. Until then, the turtle, the turtle moves. moves. <laughs>